Hi, this is Peter Rivera, and I'm the original drummer and lead singer of the group Rare Earth. We've had a long career, 50 years. We've played all over the world. We've recorded many, many albums and lots of hit singles. I'm going to talk about them all. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the stories. You see, it seems that what happened with Rare Earth in the early days was we would get a record off the radio. Pretty much popular songs is what we would work up and play in the club. And amongst ourselves, we worked at it and came up with a rendition of the songs we were going to learn for the club. So it made sense when we did the Get Ready album that we kind of put this whole 21-minute version together. And we never really contrived it where there were parts you had to play things like that. We just kind of grooved, and when each guy took a solo, he soloed the way he was feeling in the song. So later, when we started to make a second, third, fourth, fifth album, it seems that some producers wanted to, you know, shape us in a way that would fit the song they're bringing in, and they never really gave us the chance to just sit there at Woodshed and figure out, okay, great, everybody feels good about this. Okay, let's move on forward with it because we're feeling really good. Tom Baird used to do that. You see, we'd come in and start a song, and he would sit down with us, and just like he was somebody in the band, and we would run through a certain part of the song and hey that feels pretty good but maybe if we jump on this or shape that up or quiet this down or what we could come up with uh, something really good sometimes it took time but we had a lot of time to do it and it was just a good way for rare earth to to function tom was brilliant with his parts and take certain sections of the song and he was able to suggest well what if we did this or went this way and and it was really a great working combination whereas other producers that came in who had previous success with other artists they'd come back and want to redo the song they had a hit with prior to getting with us See, most producers at Motown, I mean, they were really great and they had lots of hits and were responsible for tremendous hit records from Supremes to Martha and the Vandellas to Marvelettes to all the artists. When they came in, in contact with us, we were this self-contained group that really kind of didn't know what to do with us or how what we were all about. I mean, I don't fault them for that. They were just doing their thing, but their thing was really not our thing. So sometimes it just never really worked because a lot of records, like with the other artists, you know, they're mainly singers. So they have the luxury of putting any kind of band track together, you know, strings, no strings, horns, four guitars. I mean, they could do anything, but that's, that wasn't us. We were self-contained. So it was difficult for some of those producers to communicate with us and get anything to happen. And that, you know, like I said, they're all 
they all did great. I mean, Stevie is great. We know Stevie. Come on. And and Frank Wilson was a good producer, too. And, and Tony Clark with the Moody Blues. That's great. But it just never really worked with us. The only time that it really did was when Tom Beard was there. Because, see, Tom was not really a Motown producer. He was an arranger. Uh, producers would come to him and say, Hey, Tom, I got this song on the Four Tops. I really need a really good horn section. And Tom would do that. Or he'd work with Stevie and do a, you know, all the strings and horns. Uh, God, he was so flexible, Tom, because he just had a, a wide knowledge of, of music and, and how to do it. So I really felt that he was uh, a key player in our, in our thing. I don't know what uh, all the reasons were, but eventually at Motown, you know, Stevie started doing his own things, his own way. Marvin Gaye started doing things his own way. Gone was this, you know, this uh, production thing to get the okay with the notes to do more stuff. So there was, uh, you know, it was all evolving at Motown and... Uh, uh, you know, things things were going along pretty good. We were just constantly searching about what we were going to do. So eventually we got in contact with Norman Whitfield. The company had called Norman and basically said, hey, can you rescue this sinking group? You know, I got to tell you that the work ethic that we once had was slipping away. And I believe that the reason it was was because we were in Los Angeles now. And we were on the road doing shows, many, many shows, big shows. That, that in itself was a lot of fun. But, you know, that's when the drugs came in to view. I mean, I spoke earlier about smoking, a, a, you know, a couple puffs of a joint back in the club days. And we were pretty light at all that stuff. And once we got on the road, I mean, everything from South America to playing Madison Square Garden with Sly and doing some other shows, things started getting pretty tough with keeping, keeping ourselves responsible enough to get in the rehearsal and, and just you know, try grinding out uh, songs and, and keep developing what Rare Earth was. You see, what Rare Earth was was kind of gone away a little bit now. So we all tried to hang on pretty desperately, but Motown was, like I said, there was going to bring the savior, Norman Whitfield. And we got on the, uh, the Ma album, and that didn't happen, not the way everyone thought it would. And I've often said before, and I'll say it again, the Ma album, to me, was a Norman Whitfield album played by Rare Earth. So that thing that we had, we just really didn't have anymore, or at least we might have had it, we just didn't know how to get back there because... Different personnel, 
different uh, intentions. Uh, it all started getting a little crazy. And couple that with, you know, some drug craziness, which it really is. Uh, but that's what was going on back then. And it just loosened up all the the tight-knit thing we had. It just really loosened it up. And it was a very sad thing to have happen. During all this time, we had an attorney who was suggested to us by Barney Ellis, the VP of Motown. I believe that Barney had used uh, this Alan Rosefield young guy out of New York, tax lawyer, brilliant mind, had done all kinds of contracts for the BGs and Rod Stewart and Elta John and Andy Gibb and just a brilliant guy. Anyway, he came to our offices in L.A. and he met each one of us a couple times. and He explained things like, you know, forming a corporation and we would all pay each other uh, a salary every week. So we had some consistency to, to the business. And there were problems at first because... Alan discovered that we kind of needed a day-to-day -day bookkeeper. I mean, we couldn't retain Alan every day. He'd come in, you know, once every month or six weeks or something, and he had other business to do, but he would see us. And he hired a guy, an old guy that was retired, but he was a bookkeeper. And this guy's name was Izzy Shayowitz. He was an older fellow. Nice guy, kind of a Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> he just kind of had that look about him. But he was a sweetheart guy, and he watched our books all the time. Well, he would report to Alan his findings of the, of the month. And he began to tell me, you know, I was the president of the corporation, and he'd say, Peter, there's uh, X amount of dollars missing. And, you know, at first I just went, oh, yeah, sure, Izzy. But Izzy, now he would get a hold of Alan and tell him that. And Alan and him would talk and figure out a way to police this situation. And, and Izzy still kept finding money that was missing. Now, we had a manager, Ron Strasner. And we had various uh, road managers who were, you know, some good, not so good. Finally, this guy came into view, uh, Charlie Vaseline, and he spent a lot of time with us. Actually went to South America and other things that we did, but somewhere money was missing. And Alan would come into California, and we would talk about it, and he would talk with Izzy and come to find out uh, that maybe, you know, we were getting shortchanged, period. Now, the manager suddenly probably got nervous about this and so decided to try to alienate the attorney. Well... I can only tell you this, that when Alan came in town, 
uh, I was, you know, probably the most cordial to him and friendly on a personal level, aside from being our attorney. And I learned that Alan really cared about the band and really wanted to do good things for the group. And the rest of the group, via the manager, started to not feel that way. They started to think that, well, Alan's only here because of Peter. And that just was not true because most of the time we talked, I was always talking with Alan about, hey man, what can we do for the band, for the group? And Alan had some really great ideas. He wanted us to, after forming the corporation, he wanted us to put money aside as a profit-sharing venture. And he told us all, he said, look, if you, if you do this profit-sharing and structure everything the right way, and after all, Alan was a brilliant tax attorney. He knew what to do. He said, if you do this right, you'll all be very, very secure in your life by the time all this is over. So the paychecks would be written up every week, and then money every week would go off to the profit-sharing plan. And it was building, and it was building, and things were pretty good. And then all of a sudden, because of the alienation between Alan and the rest of the band, suddenly the band wanted more money, bigger paychecks. And Alan explained, look, if I increase your paychecks by X amount, you're going to pay XXX amount in taxes on this extra income level. So better than pay the taxes, we put it in profit sharing where it will show up later. Because our paychecks every week were really substantial, and they were, they were good enough to live life, pay your bills, and have a few, uh, you know, pizzas and some fun stuff on the side. No one was hurting at all for money. But they just didn't want Alan to have any say-so at all. This was turning into a big situation that was... Uh, not uniting the band closer and closer. It was really tearing it apart. The jealousy, the mistrust, the the, the sneakiness or the, the little whisper chit-chats behind the back. It, it was all showing its ugly face. And I knew it. Alan knew it. They all knew it. So it became quite a tense situation and I was really not happy anymore being there with all the guys in the band because I just felt that they didn't trust me or Alan or any of it and uh, so things got pretty tense and I began to wonder how much longer I was going to stay in all of this we had shows to do and at the same time, uh, we just knew that things were not going to be the way they'd always been. And it was a very frightening situation, actually. There was tension on the road. There was more drugs, more drinking, uh, getting farther and farther apart. And uh, there were shows where we had to really do everything we could just to get through the show and, and try to keep smiling and then off stage. You know, it was not a good thing that was happening. One, 
two, three. Well, thanks for listening. My name is Peter Rivera, original lead singer drummer of Rare Earth, and I really appreciate that you've listened to these podcasts. I hope you come back and check out more. I've got a lot ahead of us and a lot of the story for you, so come on back and hang with me for a while. I bring you flowers, baby, cause you're the best. I'm gonna treat you so much better than all the rest. I pull the chair out for you, open and close the door. 